I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I am so sad that this person is not sitting across from me right now. But um, I'm very happy to welcome Carolina Vaklaviak to, to the show. Um, she is the author of the novels How to Get into the Twin Palms and The Invaders. Formerly an editor at The Believer, she's the executive editor of Culture at BuzzFeed News. Her latest novel is called Life Events. Hi, I miss you. Hi, I miss you so much, but it's so good to be here. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so here's the thing. I've been looking at your Instagram for years now, and I did notice a shift in um, where you were going and what you were taking pictures of. And a lot of it was focused on the desert and the, the landscape of the Southwest. Now, I'm not saying that you wrote a book about you, <laughs> but tell me about the, the lure of the desert. Sure. Um, well, I'm kind of a weirdo in that I write fiction, but I like to do research. And so I don't know how that works. I'm sure that I'm not the only novelist who does that, but I really need to go to a place to understand it. And so when I started working on this book, it felt really important to me to feel the aloneness that the desert brings. Um, and so I started spending a lot of time alone in Airbnbs in the desert to channel like what it would feel like to a drive through the Mojave all the time, yeah. um, you know, go stay in Joshua Tree and Landers and Lone Pine and these different towns just to get a feel for the people there, how desolate it is and get a sense of landscape, um, just so that it would feel authentic. And so, yeah, I spent a lot of the last, gosh, 
four years at least going to the desert. It's funny because I live, I've lived in LA for a long time. How long has it been? Yeah. Okay. You were going to answer that. (laughs) 17 years. But I lived in New York for five years. Right. In, in between. So it was 10 years, five years, and I've been here longer than five years. Whatever. Math, (laughs) I'm a writer. (laughs) The point is, I didn't really start going to the desert as much as I do now until I moved back from New York and Mm. I was absolutely searching for wide open spaces. And so it just felt natural to me to set a book in the desert while also writing about LA again. Yeah. And, and it's, it's certainly, if you're talking about a spiritual journey, that, that is so much a part of, of the desert life as well. Yeah. I mean, I feel like, the desert is a place where so many people have made jokes and then built communes in. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like, let's just take to the desert where we can be who we want to be. There's no rules. There's so many of these unincorporated like towns where nobody tells you what to do. Everybody's got a gun. And it's sort of like, I, I, I make my own rules for my plot of land. And I find that so interesting because so much of America is developed and yet yeah. the desert is still a place where you get your land and just tell everyone to leave you alone. <laughs> um, and of course, a, a bigger picture matter is that um Desert as a coping mechanism, I guess. Yeah. Um, your your book is about very very blatantly about death, um, but but in your charming, witty, wonderful way, um, but dark and intimate. And um, tell me about writing that that bearing the soul. It feels like. Yeah, it's interesting because I think the desert provides a counterpoint to that claustrophobia mm-hmm. and so much of Evelyn's like life is in other people's houses mm-hmm. or apartments in her own. She's sort of trapped in all these different spaces. And when she goes out into the desert, it's like expanse, expanse, expanse. And it just feels like a natural for me place where you can get a sense of clarity, right? And openness and a sense of perspective that you're not, um, that this is, there's so much more out there, right? And I've spent a lot of time in national parks randomly on a couple years ago on uh, uh, January, like January 1st or the end of the year, I decided to drive to the Grand Canyon. Like I just needed to commune with the Grand Canyon. And I think these spaces with like geological rock formations and everything just makes you feel like, oh, I'm here for like a minute. Mm. And that really puts things into perspective and like your problems suddenly don't seem so large. And so that like geological landscape and geography counterbalanced with death and claustrophobia and like 
it just felt right. But yeah, it's it's a dark book about death. <laughs> I tried to make it fun a little bit as much it's, as I could. It it sure. I mean, that's how you do. Every, all of your books are dark. Like there's no one saying like it's just it. like a yeah. I mean, and you're such a light person. And um, I, I, I admire that about you. Tell me about the idea that, you know, Evelyn has a change of career path, if career is even the right word, probably isn't. Yeah. Um, obsession? Obsession. She has a new obsession. That, that works. <laughs> um, tell me about the idea of being an exit guide. I, I don't know the, what, if it's based in reality, if it's based in hope. Um, and, and what that's all about. So I, years ago now, listened to the criminal podcast. Oh, yeah. Um, and there was an episode about this woman who was an exit guide and she was an older woman and she just like explained why she helps people die. Um, and specifically sits with people at, um, they don't like help administer, right? You know, help you to uh, commit suicide, but they sit with you as you um, exit your life. And the main idea really is there, no one should ever die alone. Hmm. And, and terminal patients should have some sense of control over their suffering and how long they choose to live. And I became absolutely fascinated because like you, I had never heard of this as a thing. And I started thinking about like, who does this? Yeah. You know, she just yeah. seemed like a, just like a, a random older lady. And that just like made me absolute, I like went down a total rabbit hole of what this kind of world was. And I really started getting into like the world of death acceptance and death doulas and exit guides been real fun the last <laughs> six years. <laughs> uh, my dark places basically. <laughs> but, but it's, I don't know if I can fully commit to believing everything that, that, that Bethany believes that the, the woman who is kind of the, the head of the organ, the, the death doula, uh, the main death doula, I guess. Yeah. Sort of thing. Um, but, but I do find it, it's a depiction of death that feels comforting. Like a counter narrative to the way I think specifically Americans think about death. Um, I was really like, if you look at, a lot of other cultures, there isn't this fear of death that I think Americans have where we, and we're really feeling it now, yeah, this of course. Like, you know, this imminent threat that like anything you do could, could cause your annihilation basically. But I, I really wanted to look at people who weren't necessarily afraid of the actual act of dying and even like what terminal illness looks like. And my original draft of this was very much like an older woman who wants mm. to do this. And it just felt like 
I needed to find someone who was really at a crossroads of their own life. And to me, this is sort of like the big life event um, that happens. And I was really thinking about what would happen if there was somebody who was wrestling with the other things that come before it. And so much of the death doula um, world that I saw was thinking about really dying consciously and leaving with no regrets and no resentments and things like that. So you sort of leave at peace. And I think it's really hard to do. I mean, there's so much anxiety. It almost feels like oversimplifying it to just say like, you know, you take care of your affairs and then you're out of here. Like, you know, yeah, people, it's a really hard situation, but I think Evelyn in particular is sort of looking for bigger answers about her life. And she's um, in a way which feels, I don't want to say gross cause I don't find her gross, but like she's, and I think she's more than just a tourist in this world, but she thinks if she can go to like the extreme of life that she will be woken up in her own life where she feels super stagnant. Right. And, 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 and it's an interesting concept that like, yes, people who are dying should have agency in how they die. And so why wouldn't we live our entire lives like people with agency? Yeah. And, but it's like, I think for me thinking about someone who's so afraid of making mistakes or thinking like my whole life has been a mistake or I'm just looking at everything as a mistake, you suddenly become paralyzed about making any choices Mm. because you always want to make the right choice. And you just think the stakes are so high for making the wrong choice where in reality, like life is just choices Mm. and choices we have to live with. And there's no, like, it's very much like walking away from black and white thinking of like, Mm -hmm. you're either good or you're bad. And I think she's so stuck in this world where it's either you're good or you're bad. You're either fucked up or you're golden. And I, I, this book to me is also trying to move away from those absolutes. Hmm. And, and it's so, the thing that, Evelyn thinks the most about herself perhaps is that she is too afraid of intimacy and yet she's I'm not saying she's perfect because you didn't either but like here she is choosing to be a part of the most intimate thing you can I mean sex is nothing compared to this yeah yeah and and she doesn't seem to, to be adept at some of it. Yeah, it's interesting because I think she's convinced herself that she doesn't feel anything or is incapable of feeling anything when reality the reality is she just feels too much and doesn't like feeling anything. <laughs> yeah. And she wants to control the like basically room temperature of of everything she's feeling and what the circumstances are, which I think actually perfectly aligns with being with people who want to end their own lives in that you're trying to control um, the outcome and the circumstances. And, you know, I think the first client she has 
she's walking in completely clueless and it really knocks her out and re- and she realizes like i absolutely feel too much and it's terrifying to have feelings for her um and i think for a lot of people you know nobody likes to sit with their uncomfortable feelings what are we doing right now oh and like a part of the the death doula training is is learning detachment and how Mm -hmm. to and I just it sounds like the hardest thing in the entire world like if you're in a situation and feelings are running high how to process it but but not shut down yeah it's interesting because I think people think like detachment is like cut it off you know move on I don't like I'm over it and really like detaching is an act of love Mm -hmm. first to say like, this isn't about me. This is your experience, but also giving your space to feel your feelings and giving that other person the space to give, but to have their feelings and detachment is like not trying to control another person's experience of life or death. And so much you know, Evelyn, there's moments in there and especially in the training where they say like, don't make it about yourself. And she like, cannot do that. And I cannot imagine, I would have a hard time describing a character who could. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and, and part of, um, Evelyn's training is, is sort of you making us as readers learn what she is supposed to do and she's supposed to ask herself any existential question that you might imagine and really deal with it and sit there with it and and you do that to us you make us do that too (laughs) sorry (laughs) (laughs) um and and it's so so it starts with evelyn at a workshop and she, the question that has to be asked over and over again is, how do you avoid pain? Yes. And I was thinking in terms of, okay, what does Evelyn think? What does Carolina think? (laughs) What does Maris think? (laughs) And there are so many, I mean, it's, it's plot development. It's calling the reader out. Tell me, tell me more. It's so interesting because it's such a simple question. And I think you have handy answers, you know, right away. Sure. Like, oh, duh. But to ask that question of a person over and over again for five minutes, you start running out of those quick answers and you really have to start searching yourself of like, well, what's the truth? And I think it's just trying to get at the truth. And it's, again, sitting with those uncomfortable feelings of asking yourself. And I thought it was such a neat trick. Like, I wanted readers to start asking themselves, how do I avoid pain? Like, how how do I try to navigate this world not succumbing to pain in all the ways that we do it? And I asked myself, um, I asked other people so I could have like legitimate answers mm-hmm. um, because it's really surprising. 
especially after you get away from those initial answers. The crutches and the yeah yeah and then you really start thinking like do i need those things and why do i need those things and how long have i used those things to avoid pain and to me that question became central to the book to me it's like the question of the book of all of us how do we avoid pain and i know you know there's moral questions around what these people are doing what what the doulas are doing right. what the exit guides are doing and what the clients are doing and i'm sure there will be a lot of people who say you know i don't agree with assisted suicide and these people are trying to avoid pain and they are losing out on big moments in life because they're cutting it short and i accept that i yeah. don't yeah my i personally don't agree with that but i i'm open to the possibility that this is a divisive topic and not everybody agrees with me and certainly you i felt i felt called out you, you make a comparison not directly um you have evelyn taking her benzos her xanax and her clonopin mm -hmm. and they're highly regulated and she can get a month at a time and she has to i have to have my uh calls with i love my, my benzos they, they're great they're great thank you during the pandemic thank you for benzos um but then there's secanol yeah as, as a tool to assist suicide yeah and they're not that far away yeah i mean it's 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 life is hard and we're all <laughs> trying to blunt the the trauma of it right and i would never blame anyone for the ways that they you know move through this world i think it's interesting thinking about addicts and going too far and just like the pain that is created mm -hmm. by trying to blunt the pain um but yeah, there's plenty that's regulated. Alcohol is regulated and yeah. there are many alcoholics out there. Uh, it's, I'm, I'm of like no judgment, but I, yeah. I, I think we're all doing our best, but sometimes our best really hurts other people. And I mention in the book that not everyone's families agree right. with their family members taking this um, tack and it's a really complicated decision. It's, it's so hard. And then, of course, Evelyn's background, we, we're learning about her parents and her father's an alcoholic. Um, she uses the term pre-grief or pre-grieving, mm -hmm. which also sounds like something that would be great to do in theory. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is great in theory, terrible in practice. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, but I mean, I do feel like in terms of fear of death, one of the biggest fears is dealing with grief. And Evelyn, at least, is asking the right questions. Is that is that right? Yeah, I think so. I think like she again as out of control as I think her life is, she's a control freak. Mm -hmm. She wants to know what's going to happen. You know, she turns to the end of the book to see how it ends. Mm -hmm. you know? 
Um, and so, yeah, I just, it's weird that need to control, I think really gets in your way. And it's something that I think like she really wants to outsmart grief to yeah. be like, let me feel it all now so that when it comes time for my parents to go, I will be so desensitized that it'll just like be so much easier, but it does not work that way. And it's, it's all trying to have control over the uncontrollable. I mean, grief to me is the, like where you completely lose control over your whole life. You're, physical and emotional well-being is just like decimated and it's scary to be that out of control and so I think she spends most of the book trying to game it out yeah. <laughs> like what's the worst yeah like what's the worst thing that's gonna happen how if you know what's it like if one of my clients is near an age to my mother you know what does that feel like um what does it feel like to potentially lose someone that she has a romantic interest in, you know, just to feel all facets of that loss in, attempt, in an attempt to like get it out of her system. It's warped, it's, but I commend her for trying. Yeah. I mean, it seems like there aren't many in terms of coping mechanisms. I've heard of worse. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and, and then she even gets into like the other things that her clients have to do, which is like, who would you want to write letters to before you die? And what, what do you need to forgive yourself for? And I hope that like, just thinking about these things as I was reading the book, I was like, well, I'm in a pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it does seem like something worth explicitly exploring. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I want to go back to something that you said that this, like, it is so intimate. It's so intimate what she's doing and creating an intimacy where I don't think she ever thought she was capable of that level of intimacy with another person. And you're seeing someone really as their like their body is failing them and one of her clients Lawrence is this older guy and I was writing a scene that I felt was like what is the most intimate act she could do and it's like mm. washing his face and cutting his hair and just like his willingness to give over that kind of vulnerability and trust to her where she can barely muster any <laughs> vulnerability herself just felt like she was trying to learn how to be a person through these people. Mm -hmm. But in a way it was safe because they were going to leave. Yes. Like no one was ever, it, it wouldn't, there was always an end date. Right. And so right. it was intimacy to a point. And so the stakes in a way were lower than having to have a long-term relationship with someone where you could fail them or they could fail you. Yeah. And, 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 and the other big part of the book, of course, is her grieving and pre grieving the, the, her divorce um, and the, her, the demise of her relationship. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I think it's like juxtaposing those two things of these short-term relationships that are high, high intensity, and then the banality of everyday life when you're married and having to sustain a long-term relationship with the ebbs and flows of being with a partner for a long time. It just, it feels like an impossibility to her. And as she says when, in one part of the book, like, I don't know how to be a wife. I don't like, if this is what being a wife is, I don't know how to do it. I don't even think I'm interested in doing that. Yeah. yeah. Nor am I interested in being a, a mother. And when those are the things that society is like, this is your role. Yeah. What it, I really was thinking about, like, then what does your life look like if you reject the the paths that are listed as like, this is what you do. And like, what are the alternatives look like? And I don't think there's, I'm not saying like her alternative life of marriage is particularly glamorous, but I do find it interesting thinking about alternative lives for women mm -hmm. that aren't wife and mother and the complications around those kind of narratives. Yeah. And it's, I, I find also that she doesn't appear to have a higher professional calling. No. <laughs> Which is she, like, yeah, she's like middle of the road, right? And like, what is, what it, like, I don't want to say she has no ambitions, but again, I think it goes back to fear of making choices mm -hmm. and wanting to keep the stakes low for your life. So you don't feel like you're living under the weight of all of these mistakes. Um, even though that's exactly how she feels because she sees her peers have like built lives and who knows if they're happy, but yeah, she's in this like compare and despair <laughs> situation. <laughs> I don't know anything about that. <laughs> Nor um, do I. <laughs> this has been such a pleasure. Carolina, now tell me what you've been reading and what you'd like to recommend. Oh, so I, you know, it's funny during the pandemic, I was not reading for a long time. Um, but then I just finished uh, Colson Whitehead's The Nickel Boys that mm. just came out in paperback mm -hmm. and was obsessed. I read it in like three days. Um, Laura Vandenberg's short story collection yeah. uh, is incredible. And then I just started Diane Cook's The New Wilderness. That is so good. Oh, I'm so, so excited. Good. I'm gonna, uh, That's the top of my pile. Yeah. So I'm back on a reading sprint after like I could barely watch reality TV. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> it was a dark time. We need, we need you to be consuming all the culture. All the culture, all the time. <laughs> um, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you. It was so great talking to you. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.